I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hi, listeners. Elise here to remind you of all the ways you can support the podcast and the work that Courtney and I do. First up, we have a Patreon. Our Patreon patrons receive exclusive bonus content. Every month, we do a roundup of Shakespeare-related content we have found online. We also share Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes of the podcast. These look like extended versions of episodes you've heard here, collaborations with other Shakespeare podcasters, and Courtney and I doing reviews of Shakespeare-adjacent media, like TV shows, movies, and books that are inspired by or loosely based on Shakespeare and Shakespeare plays. Patreon patrons also receive snail mail from the podcast, and some levels even vote on future episodes of our podcast. If you are interested in checking out our Patreon or just the Shakespeare-related names we've given the tiers of support, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link is also in our episode description. After you've done that, please rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. Thank you so much for all of the support you give the podcast. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Elise. Hi, Courtney. How are you today? I'm doing really well. I'm very excited for this episode today. Same. It is, I don't want to say delightful because it's not delightful in terms of the content, but our guest is wonderful. Our guest is a delight. Mm-hmm. And what we talk about for today's episode is so thoroughly fascinating because I don't think previous to like you bringing up hospitality and Macbeth, like, a year or two ago, mm -hmm. I ever really like considered hospitality in early modern England. And there is so much there to talk about. Yeah. And just to like sing our guest praises, one thing that I'm very excited about for this episode is that it actually touches on a lot of things that we've talked about in different episodes. So we've got hospitality, plays for the court, things that we talk about in King Lear come up. Our guest connected all these pieces that have been kind of like very separate. And through diving into today's topic with our guest, it kind of weaves things together really nicely. Let me introduce our guest today. Our guest is Carson Brackey. Carson Brackey is a PhD candidate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and is writing her dissertation on representations of hospitality in early modern English literature. In addition to hospitality, her research interests include domesticity, food studies, and women's writing. 
To break up the solitary work of dissertating, Carson uses her TikTok platform to talk about early modern literature and the PhD experience. You can find her at at Glutenberg Bible, where she is always looking to chat with more people about research, academia, and the weird and surprising sides of early modern English literature. Carson is here with us today to discuss the intersections of hospitality and cannibalism in Shakespeare, early modern drama and literature, and specifically Titus Andronicus. So I do want to put a big content warning here. We are about to talk about cannibalism in some detail. Listen with caution and care. And let's sink our teeth into this topic. <laughs> Please enjoy the episode. Hi, Carson. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you so much for joining us at like very late o'clock your time. Oh, thanks for joining me earlier in the day your time. This worked out great. So Carson, what was your first experience with Shakespeare? Uh, my first Shakespeare play that I ever read was Romeo and Juliet. I was probably 13 and I just was on, you know, this mission that I feel like so many nerdy people go on of just like, I want to read all the important things and I want to understand what all the big deal is about. And so I really definitely did not understand Romeo and Juliet in any meaningful or even surface level probably capacity when I read it uh, for the first time. But I absolutely loved it in part because I think I felt like I was joining this club of people who read Shakespeare and it was all just wonderful and romantic and everything else. And then my second experience reading Shakespeare was shortly after I read The Taming of the Shrew. And it burst my little idolatry bubble so thoroughly because I was reading it and I was in love with Catherine and I was so excited. And I was like, Shakespeare is not only a great writer, but a great man. And then I read the end of it and it broke my heart that this like feisty, amazing woman got so, so lowered by that ending, um, at least to my mind when I was 13. And so, yeah, I really think of it as like a two-parter first experience in Shakespeare and a very brief stint of idolatry that then turned into me just wanting to kind of fight with Shakespeare, which is really what you do when you study Shakespeare. <laughs> I love that because I'm in a class where we are talking about Taming of the Shrew and I have classmates who are like, I don't know if she got tamed. I don't know if this is, you know, I think they might have some love going on. And I'm like, you must be like sipping the Kool-Aid of the Shakespeare bardolatry because he's messy. I would love to be able to like actually have a reading of it where it's, you know, she's empowered and she's an equal partner and everything, but it's, I don't, I don't think it's there. I can't find it there. We were talking about it yesterday, literally Courtney shared this experience with me and I was like, it can just be a bad play. Like not all of them have to be winners. Absolutely. I mean, we are here to talk about Titus Andronicus. So. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much for joining us to talk about Titus. When we picked this play, I was like, oh, I hope we can get Carson on because Carson's interests and field of study is the exact intersection of Titus Andronicus. Which brings me to like my next question for you. You are currently writing your dissertation on hospitality in early modern English literature. And hospitality in Shakespeare's time was like a bit of a hot topic in public discourse. Can you share with our listeners what were those early modern concepts and concerns when it came to hospitality? 
Yeah. So I think that when you talk about hospitality today, uh, the immediate associations people have are like dinner parties or hospitality industry. And so it's either kind of domestic or commercial. And the thing that really distinguishes early modern English hospitality from our contemporary ideas is that the, the stakes were higher and it had a real social function. So in the early 1500s, the definitions around hospitality would kind of be closer to charity, conceptually and practically. And I'm, I'm coming at this mostly by looking at kind of more elite households, like nobility, gentry, practices of hospitality, served a real function of kind of community aid, as well as just kind of practically offering a place to stay for travelers. And so it had this function and there was a moral weight attached to an individual's performance of hospitality. It was your responsibility as a householder to extend this charitable form of hospitality to those who knock at your door and to your surrounding community. But as the 1500s wore on and into the 1600s um, and continuing, this starts to shift into something where hospitality is thought of and practiced more as entertainment and more as sort of an elite entertainment. And so there is this anxiety about this shift. And it is in part a functional shift because there are increasing public aid programs basically available that are, are taking some of that responsibility away from the householder. And there are increasingly available alehouses and inns that are removing the need for travelers to stay in a private home. And so this is responding in part to practical social changes that are happening. But there's also, and I'm sure you see this at least five times a generation in regards to different things, but there's this idea that uh, the English have fallen from a previous high standard and there's this perceived loss of a golden age of hospitality. Whether that golden age ever existed mm -hmm. is unclear and kind of irrelevant because the point is that now people in the late 1500s, early 1600s are talking about this loss and that this perceived failure is kind of a shadow over every discussion of hospitality and every literary representation of hospitality um, is, is this idea that this moral imperative is being failed. That's super interesting. We've briefly talked about some of that later representations of hospitality. When we talked about King Lear, we went into some of the social programs that were existing in Shakespeare's time and talking about like how what we would now consider mental health was treated and that it was like this point of pride for Londoners to have charitable hospitals that took care of those in society that like couldn't take care of themselves. So it's fascinating to me that that's like connected to this much longer arc of the hospitality of the noblesse oblige gentry ideals from like the middle ages and this idea that like oh it's gone it's like no you're still doing it you're just doing it differently and it's more government-based or um, endorsed instead of these wealthy landowners taking it on yeah 
there's two different royal proclamations coming from Elizabeth that address this and really criticize the nobility uh, because another piece of this is it's not just um, social, it's not just moral, but it's it's kind of political as well, that the function that these householders are supposedly meant to be filling and their their failure to do that is something that uh, Elizabeth targets. She scolds them for coming to the city when they should be in their country homes providing hospitality. And she complains that they are failing this, this obligation uh, just a couple different times in the 1590s alone. One, wow. I had no idea about Elizabeth being like, what are you doing? I mean, we see it across like the early modern era of like the power shifting from these kind of like separated landowners into London's becoming more of the modern city where all of the politics are happening. And like you said, like people are moving there to do business and are leaving behind their country estates and their country estates are being left to be run often by the women of the household while the earls and lords are following wherever the king or queen is in residence. This is going to be, this is going to be a bit of a, bit of a hard left turn maybe for our listeners, but how does cannibalism factor into hospitality, especially like with early modern literature and plays? Yeah. So you have kind of a range of the ways that cannibalism is presented in early modern English drama. Probably the farthest extreme is Titus, where there is literal onstage cannibalism happening, but there are also several instances of cannibalistic overtones in early modern English drama that occur during a hospitality event. And this is part of where we can see what I was just saying about how these anxieties around hospitality are kind of shadowing a lot of the representations of hospitality so that hospitality is being presented over and over as dangerous and immoral and flawed in a way that connects back to these less extreme but real social anxieties that are happening. So one of the most common places that you see cannibalism in early modern English literature is in revenge tragedies, which is the genre to which Titus more or less belongs. And it is a very tropey genre in general. And one of the tropes of the genre is that this final climactic, violent, everybody dies scene occurs in a hospitality context. So in Titus, it's the banquet. In several others, it's also a banquet, or it could be a play within a play being performed in this elite hospitality context within the play, or Hamlet has uh, many connections to revenge tragedy, and in Hamlet, it's the fencing match, that entertainment. And so these climactic hospitality contexts in revenge tragedy often have either literal or implied or linguistic evocations of cannibalism in them. You mentioned a few different versions of hospitality, and earlier you were talking about how hospitality to the early modern English person wasn't just dinners or wasn't just the hospitality industry as we know it today. Like, What other types of plot points or like events can we, when reading Shakespeare, recognize as like, oh, that's a hospitality event? I think that the the mask is a very interesting one that doesn't come up 
as often in Shakespeare. So in The Tempest, you have this mystical mask. Mask is spelled sometimes M-A-S-K. Sometimes there's an E at the end. Sometimes it's M-A-S-Q-U-E. And mm-hmm. this is a, a form of early modern English drama that is specific to elite households and is kind of contextually specific. So it's a play that is is written for something like a marriage or a holiday celebration or because the queen is at your house. And these real historical genre of the mask um, will sometimes appear in the form of a play within the play in something like The Tempest. And masks also often have like members of the elite performing in them, right? Yes. And they are a fun place to see women's contribution to theater because of course women barred from the commercial stage, but Queen Anne was, King James's wife, was deeply involved in actually kind of like the formalization of the mask as a genre. She loved to act in them and was very involved in them. And yeah, she would get to perform. Looping back to cannibalism. Sorry. As I often do. As, <laughs> thank you. As you do. As you've mentioned, like Titus is the most extreme and explicit depiction of cannibalism in Shakespeare. But can we also find cannibalism elsewhere in Shakespeare? We sure can. Sometimes it's through things like just the language of cannibalism you know, much ado about nothing. Beatrice is so angry. She wants to eat Claudio's heart in the marketplace. There's no suggestion that she's actually going to do so. Or Timon of Athens, his false friends who are taking advantage of him, that advantage and that their greed is described as them devouring him. You also have references to the existence of cannibalism, or at least one you have in Othello, as Othello is describing how Desdemona fell in love with him through listening to his stories. One of his stories was about his encounters with cannibals. But I think that one of the most interesting to me examples of cannibalism connections in Shakespeare is, again, in in The Tempest, it's less obvious but it's more substantial which is obviously you have character Caliban who maybe that name is meant to evoke the idea of cannibalism but you also have a seeming reference to an early modern text about cannibalism and I know I was listening to the episode that you did about Ovid uh, recently so I know you've talked about how We don't often know what Shakespeare read, but in the cases that we do, we know because there's explicit references and Shakespeare almost directly quotes a passage from uh, Michel de Montaigne's essay of Cannibals, which was written in 1580 in French, translated 1603. And there is a passage in which Michel de Montaigne is describing this society of cannibals, and it is echoed too closely to be a coincidence in the speech that Gonzalo gives when he is describing this kind of ideal society that he might create on the island after having been shipwrecked there. And so I think that this is so interesting for a couple reasons. One is that 
the point of Montaigne's essay is kind of to push back against the idea that cannibals are more barbaric with big scare quotes than Europeans. Mm -hmm. And he is writing this after having encountered in France a group of people indigenous to what is now Brazil, who he describes their cannibalistic practices. I take this with a massive mound of salt. I don't take it as anthropological research or anything like that, but he describes what he calls their cannibalistic practices and draws a parallel between that and European acts of violence within their own countries and against their neighboring countries. And he criticizes these acts of violence under the names of piety and religion and says, you know, is it any worse for them to be eating people who are already dead when we are essentially consuming the lives of people as they are alive and, and causing all the suffering and everything. And so to know that that argument of Montaigne's is something that was floating around the creation of the Tempest, which is so much about otherness and cultural encounters and everything like that, I think that just adds a shade to it, a perspective, a new dimension, something. I like putting them next to each other and, and thinking about what that means. Yeah, I think that's especially cool because we've done some pre-colonial research, um, Shakespeare and pre-colonial studies, and travel narratives were huge during the early modern time. And like so much of that draws back. The British Empire was in its infancy yeah. and there are echoes of everything that comes back to London and gets put on the stage. Yeah. And, you know, we're looking at it now with the knowledge of everything that unfolds afterwards, but you're seeing with something like the Tempest, these ideas being kind of worked out in their infancy that are going to turn into even more horrible and institutionalized mm -hmm. versions of these little baby steps towards colonial violence. I know Courtney wanted to talk about this. We're on this England as a colonial power in its infancy, colonial infancy, and cannibalism was used to otherize people. But at the same time, the English specifically were also participating in what you've called medical cannibalism. Can you explain the hypocrisy and like cognitive dissonance that was happening surrounding cannibalism for the early modern English people? I can throw a lot of thoughts and information at yeah. it. I want to preface it by saying that I wouldn't position myself as an expert on this, but it's something that I read a lot about and I think a lot about. So that, that term medicinal cannibalism, I take from another scholar, mm -hmm. uh, Louise Noble, who wrote the book on it quite literally. And she identifies that exact like dissonance that you just mentioned, that at the same time, that European writers are condemning the capital O other as savage and barbaric on the basis of cannibalism, there is at this same time a very well-established practice of cannibalism in England, which is one of those things that a lot of people are surprised to hear, understandably. This is not a, a situation of uh, a suggestion of cannibalism or the language of cannibalism. In and around Shakespeare's lifetime in England, people were eating people. You can look at 
medical texts. There's a, a 1618 text uh, published by the official English College of Physicians that describes mummified human flesh and blood as medical ingredients and, and the properties of them. Uh, you can flip through a domestic guidebook, which is basically an early version of a cookbook, and you can read the recipes for a roast chicken and how to dye linens and the uses of mummy. Mummy being probably the most common, or at least the most widely talked about uh, version of how uh, the human body was used as a medical ingredient, but also blood, bone, feces, menses, urine. Um, these things are all kind of incorporated into the medical arsenal. And because you couldn't always get your hands on real Egyptian mummy, you could also find a recipe for making your own. And so you don't know with something like this how widely it was practiced because we are just working on these prescriptive texts, but we do know that it was a practice. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I can go on to, to latch onto the even further with this idea of this being used to other. Yeah, it, it goes uh, even further and it gets even worse um, because not only is there this dissonance around English writers dehumanizing and devaluing people who practice cannibalism in theory while themselves very literally practicing cannibalism. But the English practice of cannibalism, both the historical practice and the literary versions of it, has a racialized aspect of not just hunger for a body, but hunger for the body of the other. So on the literary side of this, you have something like a 1622 play called The Sea Voyage, in which shipwrecked sailors start to get really hungry for the body of the indigenous woman that they are holding captive. Or on the historical side of it, you have mentions in these medical texts about how mummy coming out of Egypt is going to be the superior one. Or, and this is one of the more um, upsetting, not that any of the cannibalism stuff is exactly fun when you start to think too much about it, but this is one of the more upsetting things that I've read on the subject is a recipe for making your own mummy um, that starts with the raw ingredient of a captive moor, as it says. So it is a recipe for taking an alive man and turning him into a medical ingredient. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Jaws dropped. Yeah. yeah. We're not a video podcast, but yeah, just. It's chilling. And it's to, to read a recipe that is, you know, written in, I read a lot of early modern English recipes for pies and cakes and, and medicine and to, to hear, to read it in the same mode, the same description of processes and everything, but with the ingredient being a man, it's, yeah, it's, it's chilling. And I, I would say again, not to give anybody who's making that recipe the benefit of the doubt, but it is another one of those things of, you don't know exactly how widespread that would have been. Right. But just that it was within the imagination that it was published, that it was legible to an early modern reader that a person could become an ingredient. 
Right. As you've been speaking about that, it made me think of things that exist today, like the anarchist cookbook 400 years from now, if that's surviving, people going, wow, this was written down somewhere of how to do all of this violence. Again, like we don't know how many people actually use those recipes is, you know, a hopefully very small amount. Yes. Something like that, I guess, could maybe even be read maybe as kind of literature more than a medical text. Again, this is not my exact area of research expertise, but it is definitely responding to something real. Similar, I think, to the example you brought up. I've I've not read that, the anarchist cookbook, but you know, even if what it is describing is not meant to be followed or even is never followed, it's responding to something real in society. Uh, some ideas or or concerns that are real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing I'm thinking about as well is that cognitive dissonance that we talked about earlier, where the English are othering tribal indigenous people for their practices. And then on the other hand, specifically using non-white, non-European people as potential ingredients for their own medicinal cannibalism. It's a wild trip. Yeah. It's as you're reading it. And again, maybe this is with hindsight of everything that comes after, but it feels like this intentional strategic way of drawing the definitions of humanity to include some people and exclude other people. And it continues, you know, on, on and on. I'm going to give just a plug for a book about this, which I talk about on TikTok every time I talk about the subject because I love this book. It's called Tasting Difference by Gitanjali Shahani. And it goes through these, these literal and figurative ways that I think the phrasing she uses is, is the ways that colonizing subjects rendered colonized subjects edible, that the bodies of the colonized were rendered edible in the minds or sometimes the practices of the colonizing subjects. I got that book off of your suggestions. Oh, so. yay. <laughs> it's so good. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. And I have two thoughts going off of this with Titus is like, number one, I'm surprised Aaron is not a part of that banquet scene. Number two, Demetrius and Chiron, I guess, are othered because they're the Visigoths. So all of this is coming to light in Titus. Yeah. And well, I can connect this to another uh critical perspective that I always think about when thinking about cannibalism, which is so much more than the average person, which is in a discussion of that same thing I mentioned earlier, the 1622, um, the sea voyage in which um, it's the English people who are wanting to commit an act of cannibalism. Scholar Matt Williamson says that part of the function of staging that is forcing the audience to confront what might push them to that point and whether they are already at that point, Mm. which separate to these ideas of like otherness and race, which are, I think, a necessary part of a substantial conversation on this. There's also the kind of bare horror aspect of cannibalism, which is that you just flinch away from the idea of it But when you are put into uncomfortable contact with it, like in Titus, where it is Titus, the Roman, who is making this happen. He's not eating the pie, but he is 
creating the condition for cannibalism to happen, it maybe makes the viewer, the reader confront whether this is a possible thing, like whether it is a capacity that they themselves have, um, what might push you to it, why, where that horrible, unspeakable, undoable thing happens. Yeah. And when you think about the anxieties about hospitality and the depictions of like, oh, hospitality is dangerous and there's plenty of reasons to not do it. Titus creating the conditions in which cannibalism can occur is a really strong, I don't know if it's the right word, but like perversion of hospitality Yeah, for an early modern audience to be like, yeah, that you don't know. You can't eat at everybody's house, you know, as the TikTok sound goes. Truly. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Titus is so strategic and this is something that recurs in early modern representations of violence within hospitality context is this idea that people enter into hospitality context, believing themselves to be safe and that makes them unsafe in Titus it truly does not make sense that Tamara would believe herself to be safe, but she does, whether it's because she believes Titus is insane enough to be harmless or because she is just placing complete trust in the kind of contract of hospitality. It works. It is this strategic way to set someone at ease in a situation when they should very much not be at ease. Like, Duncan entering into the Macbeth's home, thinking that he can place complete trust when it is his trust that gives Lady Macbeth the opportunity. Yeah, Macbeth has a whole breakdown over, you yes. know, he's here in double trust first as he's my kinsman and then like, I'm his host. I should be shutting the door against intruders and not, yeah. you know, bearing the knife myself. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and he, it, that Macbeth is probably in all of Shakespeare, the most about hospitality and about the failures and the dangers of hospitality and the ability for it to be perverted. But what I think is that when you line up all of these early modern examples of these horrible acts being committed, sexual assault, murder, cannibalism, uh, betrayal, financial abuse, all of these things happening within hospitality, it raises the question, are these perversions of hospitality or is this just what hospitality does? Is it lays people vulnerable to each other? I think in real life, no. I've been to a lot of dinner parties and they've never ended like this. But again, it's this distance between real life, real practice, and the literary kind of refractions of that, that are rooted in something true. So even if I wouldn't say that in early modern England, hospitality is inherently deadly, dangerous, deceptive, there is enough of an anxiety that it is, that it has such this dominant presence in literary representations. I'd love to, um, also go into we've talked now about Lady Macbeth and Macbeth and that depiction of hospitality and you have an article titled the dangers of hospitality in Shakespeare and it specifically discusses the role of the hostess 
and the dangers of performing hospitality um, as it also intersects with the role of women in early modern society. What specifically were like the expectations of the host, hostess, we've talked about like safety and shutting the door against danger. And then how does that intersect with the role of women in early modern society? This is another case in which there are these distinct but intersecting things of the historical practice and then the literary representations of that thing. As we talked about at the at the beginning of this conversation, there was this real moral and social significance to the practice of hospitality in an elite household. And that extends to, of course, the hostess. Women at the time, of course, were occupying a constrained situation. Again, I'm looking at elite forms of hospitality. So the constraints were different. Of course, these kinds of constraints are exacerbated by things like class. And so it is different for elite hostesses, but for that position of the hostess of an established or important household, stepping into the role of hostess affords new and specific opportunities for authority, creativity, and kind of agency in general, because the role of the mistress of a house was very labor intensive and kind of managerial. You're, you're in part running in a state. Um, you mentioned earlier the prevalence of men running off to the city at the time and leaving the woman of the house in charge, and it was a, a substantial responsibility there are a couple of um, of letters surviving from Robert Sidney to his wife, Barbara. They are the subject of the Johnson poem to Pencehurst and have other literary connections, the Sidneys. And there are these, these letters surviving in which uh, Robert Sidney is deferring to his wife's uh, judgment. He is asking her for financial advice. He is uh, reassuring her that even though he just stepped in to hire somebody new for the house, it wasn't a way to uh, infringe on her authority, that she is the authority of the household. So, you know, I bring up this little anecdote to, to kind of get to this point of women having very real and very practical authority in the household. And so from that position to step in, into the position of hostess, particularly as hostess of important guests, there are now opportunities for political engagement or for social mobility because you are in this advantageous position and you are engaging with people on substantive matters. For example, Queen Elizabeth very often made royal progresses through England other monarchs as well, but she was particularly active as going on progress and staying in these different elite homes. And there are multiple instances that I have read about through a book by a scholar, Elizabeth Zeman Kolkovich. There are these instances in which we can see the women of the house in which Elizabeth was staying use these visits for very specific strategic purposes for things like trying to position her daughters to get advantageous positions at court 
or things like trying to smooth over past indiscretions of some of her family members and trying to now regain Elizabeth's favor or even to criticize some of uh, the court's policies or kind of the culture of the court. And so there are these real opportunities afforded to women when they step into this position of hostess. But what we see so often in literature is either a discomfort around that authority that women occupy through this position or a fear that hostesses are vulnerable because access to the house means access to the woman's body. And that is what we are really seeing in the two texts that I look at in that article of mine, uh, The Winter's Tale and The Rape of Lucrece, that in Winter's Tale, this access to the hostess's body is imagined, and it is Leontes's obsessive fear that his guest has had an affair with his wife. And then in The Rape of Lucrece, of course, it is actualized and real that Tarquin's access to Lucrece's house in her husband's absence gives him the opportunity to assault her. I wouldn't say that it's quite dissonant, but it is just this impossible situation of the early modern hostess, wherein in Lucrece's example, in order to be the hostess who extends welcome to the person who knocks at her door and specifically this powerful person who comes to her door she has to perform the role of hostess she has to welcome him in and she has to do that in order to bring kind of this honor to her house but it is that exact responsibility that is her undoing and there's just no way out of it and there is a point in Shakespeare's telling of this narrative where Lucrece actually expresses that and kind of gives voice to this this kind of double bind where she in the aftermath of this horrible attack she is lying there thinking about her husband and the the supposed dishonor that is brought onto him through this horrible thing that has happened to her and she says it's only because of my husband that I allow Tarquin into my home but it is only now because of this that I have ruined my husband as she believes and as is common to see in depictions of women who are victims of sexual assault at this time which to bring it back to Titus again is something that we kind of see in the treatment of Lavinia as now uh, needing to die mm. because this has happened. Yeah. Yeah. And Chiron and Demetrius aren't guests in the same respect, but they're also like brought into Rome and they're the ones who do that to her. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Saturninus says that the Goths won't be treated like prisoners. They'll be treated like guests or something sim like I don't along I don't those know. lines. Along it's along those lines of like you're not citizens and you're not prisoners. You're not prisoners. You're like some somewhere in between. There's yeah, this like shiftable line of 
us versus them and it, it shifts mm-hmm. them a little bit closer into us, but yeah. Yeah. This has been super fascinating. And we kind of talked about like, where else do we see hospitality or the intersections of hospitality and cannibalism in Shakespeare and early modern works? If, you know, someone is like, I also want to join Carson in <laughs> learning more about this. Yeah. Really the revenge tragedy genre is just rife with cannibalism. So things like Antonio's Revenge or The Revenger's Tragedy or Tis Pity, She's a Whore. These all have these banquet scenes that carry suggestions of cannibalism and kind of implied, if not enacted in the way that you see in Titus. And then right up there in terms of the intensity spectrum with Titus, you have the play The Bloody Banquet, which I hesitate to call a favorite of mine, but it is a wealth of academic meat to dig. Oh, I should not have called it academic meat. That was the wrong phrasing. (laughs) We had a whole episode called Titus Andronicus Stuff to Chew chew On. on. And so we went through the same, like, we like have this episode about things that like you generally talk about when you talk about this play. And we were like, we always call this play Stuff to Chew On. And we picked that like three years ago, but now it has a very different meaning. Yeah. <laughs> now it's got an entendre no. to it and we can... I'll just lean into it the bloody banquet will give you plenty to sink your teeth into if you're interested in representations of cannibalism and hostesses in the bloody banquet as well it's a weird one they're all weird <laughs> this has been so interesting thank you for unpacking what was happening for this to be such a popular topic to write about and to read about or to go see a play about in early modern England. And I think because we always try to bring it back to how theater practitioners can kind of use this information because you're not going to actually stage cannibalism. But one thing that like I'm taking away is the idea of these hospitality events. It's not just a fencing match in Hamlet. Like there's this heightened formality to these situations that makes what happens in them perverse and upsetting to the audience and they should be and as we look at these plays and like when they're produced or like how they can be produced is not just like oh well and now we have a weird fencing match at the end it's like no this built towards this or um I think Macbeth is the clearest in like why is this a problem but we also see people questioning like the banquet scene with Banquo what is Lady Macbeth like She's just trying to save face. And it's like, yeah, because the stakes are so actually so high because of the hospitality and the hostess role that she's performing. And what Macbeth is doing is weird and is out of place in that overall context. She's so much better at hospitality than him. And she's so <laughs> mad at him about it the yeah. whole time. And it like possibly literally breaks their relationship because they never speak again. Yeah. Yeah. The scholar Paul Kotman points out every time the Macbeths plan a dinner, they plan a murder, or at mm-hmm. least Macbeth does. You know, Lady Macbeth isn't party to uh, his second scheming. This might be uh, a tangent, but because you mentioned kind of like theater, like how to how to put these things into practice, I know very little about the practical side of theater, but I, one of the other things that I think is very interesting about early modern hospitality 
is that ideas of theater and ideas of hospitality were were very intertwined in this kind of like reflexive way wherein theater is hospitality and hospitality is theater in a way that I think rings true still today that the experience of going to a play is kind of a hospitality event and there are a few early modern English plays where there will be a prologue welcoming you to the feast which is the play and saying we hope it fits your taste but remember everybody likes different flavors and of course the inverse of hospitality being theatrical is definitely something that I think anybody can appreciate today there's always a little bit of performance to the act of hospitality there's set design you don't actually live like this the way that you know you have your dining room set up when your guests come over and there's a theatricality to it as well yeah that's all part of why if you're a the office watcher the dinner party episode where Michael and Jan have guests over is so horrifying because everything that could go wrong in that dinner party does and it's so difficult to watch because of the theater that's expected yeah just like Titus (laughs) I think that's a great note to end it on thank you Carson for joining us today this has been like such a fantastic conversation thank you so much thank you I truly selfishly joined TikTok so I could rant at people about this stuff and now you've let me do it for like an hour (laughs) (laughs) anytime Thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare Any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Taming of the Shrew, Act 4, Scene 3, said by Catherine, My tongue will tell the anger of my heart, or else my heart, concealing it, will break. And rather than it shall, I will be free, even to the uttermost as I please in words.